0: are of course on the front lines during this pandemic, and perhaps no hospital has seen more for a longer period of time than the legendary Bellevue Hospital in New York City. Our history lesson comes from Mo Rocca. Bellevue in many ways is an eerie place. It's an eerie place because the ghosts are everywhere. This is a hospital that goes back three centuries. Every immigrant group has come through
1: with every imaginable disease. If you want to tell the story of America through its chronology of health crises, then there's no better setting than Bellevue Hospital.
0: The Irish come first, and they allegedly bring with them cholera and typhus. Then the Germans and the Jews come, and tuberculosis becomes the big disease.
1: Pulitzer Prize winner David Oshinsky is the author of a book about the storied New York City Hospital.
0: This is a tuberculosis balcony, and here were the famous Bellevue TV wards. And the belief was that fresh air would help, you would have dozens and dozens of people out at one time. They'd be here in the snow.
1: And in the 1980s, Bellevue was ground zero during the AIDS epidemic.
0: More patients with AIDS come to Bellevue and more patients with AIDS die at Bellevue Hospital. And the treatment of AIDS patients is a story of struggle and heroism and eventually helping to turn a deadly disease into a treatable one.
1: With COVID-19 patients expected to fill the city's hospitals, Bellevue and its doctors will once again be on the front lines. That Bellevue has confronted so many crises isn't surprising. Founded in the 1730s, it's America's oldest public hospital, meaning all are welcome, regardless of condition or ability to pay.
0: Bellevue turns no one away. I mean, that has always been the mantra of Bellevue Hospital. And they come to Bellevue knowing that they will be treated and they will be welcomed.
1: And it's because Bellevue has always taken in the worst of the worst cases that it's drawn the best of the best in medicine. Consider the case of Alexander Anderson, Bellevue's first doctor.
0: In the six weeks of the great yellow fever epidemic, Alexander Anderson lost his son to yellow fever, his wife to yellow fever, his mother and father and brother to yellow fever, and he largely stayed the course because he believed it was God's will that he helped these people. And to me, Alexander Anderson is really not only Bellevue's first doctor, but he sets down the notion and the ethos of compassion.
2: Dr.
1: Susan Cohen, the current director of palliative care at Bellevue, carries on that tradition.
3: We see every emotion, every facet of the human condition that you can imagine, and it's humbling.
1: As is the scale of the place.
2: There's a diner, there's a school, there's a court, there's a jail, there's a hospital, There's everything is in the walls of Bellevue.
0: Bellevue was the first hospital to have a civilian ambulance corps. They were light, they were horse-driven, they could move
1: at incredible speed. Bellevue's story can also be told through a remarkable run of medical milestones. It had the first nursing school, the first departments of forensics and pediatrics, the first maternity ward. If I may, Bellevue is on the cutting edge when it comes to circumcision.
0: It is. Louis Sayre really did the first medical circumcisions. These were obscure religious rituals until this
1: time. Yet for all its breakthroughs, Bellevue became infamous for its psychiatric wing, the very name a byword for insanity. That's because of this woman.
0: Nellie Bly was the great daredevil female reporter. She was the one who when Jules Verne wrote Around the World in 80 days, Nellie Bly went Around the World in 76 days.
1: Bly was writing for Joseph Pulitzer's New York World when she went undercover in 1887 to report on the city's psychiatric hospitals.
0: Nellie Bly made like she was crazy. She basically had a fake breakdown. The judge sent her to Bellevue Hospital.
1: From there she was sent to a state mental hospital on Blackwell's Island where the treatment she witnessed was barbaric, chronicled in Ten Days in a Madhouse, a sensational expose that became a best-selling book.
0: Once that comes out, Bellevue in the public mind is really linked almost forever with insanity and mental illness. Killer.
1: Bellevue became a punchline, as in this clip from The Honeymooners.
4: And I'm calling Bellevue cause you're nuts!
1: Where to? Bellevue. Bellevue. And at the movies, Bellevue was where Chris Kringle was sent in Miracle on 34th Street. And a host of real life writers and artists spent time in the hospital psych ward. O. Henry. O. Henry
0: sent to Bellevue Stephen Foster. My old Kentucky home, Stephen Foster. That is correct, Leadbelly. Belly.
1: Blues legend Lead Belly even wrote a song about his stay at the hospital.
2: I was lying down one morning in Bellevue. I saw Miss Johnson, she must have been a nurse, she was new. It's so long.
1: And singer John Lennon was brought here after he was shot, along with his assassin.
0: In one of the great ironies of the story, Mark Chapman was being examined by psychiatrists probably a hundred feet away from where John Lennon's body was in, in the morgue.
1: But it was the 1989 murder at Bellevue of Dr. Catherine Hinnant that shook the institution to its core.
0: A homeless man who had been living illegally in Bellevue Hospital killed a pregnant pathologist in her office, and it caused an absolute furor. And Bellevue really had to decide at that moment, are we a hospital that provides emergency services to everybody, or are we a bus station?
1: In the end, security was ramped up, and Bellevue did not abandon its mission as a public hospital. Dr. Susan Cohen has been at the hospital for 12 years.
3: I love the people. I love the patients and I love the mission. You have to want to be here to be here. If it's not the right fit for you, you shouldn't be here.
1: Bellevue remains important because it is the bellwether.
0: It is the place that takes in people who can often go nowhere else. And if they have a medical issue, it will be taken care of with great care and compassion.
2: Well, hello there. Pull up a chair. You might want to take a break in between and take a nap in between. (laughs) Wow. The world of the mentally insane. Welcome to America. Yeah, this is quite a deal, Um, and my file is just growing master legs at this point, so let me start to unpack some of this. And what a shocker. The founders of the mental health are religious. I'm just, (laughs) hold on to your seats, gang. This is quite something else. So I have a couple files, so because I'm not clever enough to rotate between two files, I will um first start off with a couple of comments, and then I'll move to um looking at our doctors' religious um just a side note, um when I was doing a sound check on the last show, I heard my dog drinking waters <laughs> so, I was so busy talking, I didn't even see it do it, but it wouldn't have changed anything right so I think the goal here, I'm going to give you a little bit of my two cents and then talk about the doctors, their views on religion, and there's a lot to unpack here. I've got uh, data on, well, would Americans pay for drugs here versus other countries? Um, The high cost of medical care here, that's just kind of an aside. And at the end, I will be addressing the current issue with the children because I think by now we have a pretty good grasp on um, children have been not treated very well in this country. Um, you know, children being deprived of their moms and dads, future customers for these people, right? Um, and a lot's possibly going on during this era. We have all those old mental institutions around this country. A lot of them were built, all of them were built with bricks and stones and looked more castle-like to me. Were they earlier than these 1800 days? Possibly. Um, You know, they were creating this society, right? Were those mental wards, maybe maybe the mental wards were other converted buildings, right? Maybe because of the masonry and stuff involved in these early mental wards in the 1800s. Or maybe it's their location. Maybe on the East Coast brought up more brick buildings, but I don't know. We'll have to look at that later, but... um, Yeah. So, the early mental institutions were huge, huge facilities. So, I talked about that already last show. So, were they previously some other building? Don't know. Were they built for this purpose? Hmm, Possibly. I kind of lean toward they may have been built previously. Um, And what about you know, a lot of stuff is going on here, okay? The people that started all this relate to the Quakers. They were the early ones in science, which I found really interesting. I didn't know how the Psychiatric Association got started. So I dug up so much stuff that I'd like to share with you today, so you'll have to kind of excuse the fact that it's going to be going in batches. because <laughs> <laughs> It would really. The whole idea here is to share my research as I go along, and it would be a bit much to try to um, put it into <clears throat> a better kind of order. Okay, so let's start off. Oh, let me see what else I was going to say there. So yeah, were these were these mental so-called mental facilities? Were they also experimental places? They were doing early hormone tr- experiments back then. This is a eugenics program. This country, this is my view, and you're going to have to just listen to what I'm saying today, absorb it all, and then just think for yourself. I think that was beyond the whole thing. Eugenics and population control and population development into a certain type of person. See what I'm going with that? Um, So, yeah. So... I think it's more complicated than I previously thought. At first, I thought, well, mental institutions here were to lock up the people that didn't go along with the program, right? You know, at some point in history, there was an overlap between the takeover and people who still remember history who didn't go along with the new program, right? That would be one purpose for those mental hospitals, but was there another purpose? was the purpose some sort of experimentation on a mass scale that would probably make this, you know, all that Auschwitz stuff, right? This could be an experiment on a huge scale that went on for much longer than Auschwitz ever would, right? And I'm also suspect of the Jewish relationship to these people. So, a lot going on here. But first, what are asylums, okay? Asylums in antiquity were places of refuge in ancient Greece and Rome. Asylums were also called Benevolent Asylum, a 19th century Australian institution for housing the destitute. There's also the Cities of Refuge, a place or refuge in ancient Judea. Church Asylum or Sanctuary, a right to be safe from arrest in the sanctuary of a church or temple. Lunatic asylum or mental asylum or historical term for psychiatric hospital started out calling lunatic asylums. There's also orphan asylums called orphanages. So, and it was started by a rich Quaker. Let me get back over to the religion thing, and then I'll get back over here. Otherwise, I will wander off. Okay, the first study of physicians was done in June of 2005 about their religious beliefs. We found that 76% of doctors believe in God and 59% believe in some sort of afterlife. It was referred by some researchers, University of Chicago. 90% of doctors in the United States attend religious services, or at least occasionally, compared to 81% of all adults. 55% of doctors say their religious beliefs influence how they practice medicine. These results were not anticipated religious belief tends to decrease as education and income levels increase, yet doctors are highly educated and on average well compensated. The findings also differ radically from 90 years of studies showing that only a minority of scientists, excluding physicians, believed in God or an afterlife. Yeah, that's been a big spell, right? The scientists and stuff say, oh, we don't believe in this stuff. It's, we got we got to track it. We can't see this creator person, so we're going to deny it happened. So, yeah, but that's their shill game, right, these scientists. But where these scientists came from is interesting. I'll get to that when I get back over <laughs> to the Quakers. <laughs> so, oh, boy. The, the study went on to say, we did not think physicians were nearly this religious. Yeah, although physicians are nearly as religious as the general population, their specific beliefs often differ from those of their patients. While more than 80% of patients describe themselves as Protestants or Catholics, only 60% of physicians come from either group. Physicians are 26 times more likely to be Hindu Than the overall U.S. population. (laughs) It's kind of strange, isn't it? (laughs) Well, well, well. Um, I'm trying not to scroll up 50 pages. Okay, doctors. Doctors. (laughs) Here we go. Here, (laughs) bingo. Doctors are seven times more likely to be Jewish. They say that 14.1 percent are Jewish. Um. Although, don't forget the Crypto-Jews, right? Okay, six times more likely to be Buddhist, 1.2%. And five times more likely to be Muslim, 2.7% versus 0.5% of the general population. Although doctors are more likely than the general population to attend religious services, they are less willing to apply their religious beliefs to other areas of life. Hmm. 61% of doctors say they try to make sense of a difficult situation and decide what to do without relying on God versus only 29% of the general population. So 61% of doctors say they want to see if they make sense of something without God But 29% of the population believe that God or the Creator is a good deal. We have paid a great deal of attention to the religious beliefs of patients and how their faith influences medical decisions. But until now, no one has looked in the same way at physicians, the other half of every doctor-patient relationship. These findings lead us to further wonder how doctors' face shape their clinical encounters. So, yeah, I don't know. There's just a lot to these doctors things, right? So I think we're done with that. So let me move over to where I got this stuff going here. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So it was started by a rich Quaker. Let me buzz down here. I found an article about what the Jews said about the Quakers. Evidently, the Jews are very fond of the Quakers. Okay, let me see here what they said. Okay, the Jews, there was a recent article in their magazine, Haraz or whatever it is. Uh. Okay, despite their, this is from, from the Jewish people, right? They feel they. here's my recap, they feel like they owe the Quakers uh, some sort of sense of loyalty because during the days when the Jews were being persecuted, the Quakers helped them out. So now they're calling for people to help out the Quakers. So They went on to say, despite their small numbers, there are about 200,000 Quakers in the world, most of them living today in the United States. Two Quakers... Richard Nixon, and Herbert Hoover have served as U.S. Presidents. (laughs) They said this, I didn't. However, given their overall records, people might say that two is more than enough. (laughs) In the first two centuries of their existence, this is from the Jewish, I'm continuing on from the Jewish magazine, In the first two centuries of their existence, Quakers lived among themselves and tried to refrain from contact with the outside world. But their enlistment in the battle against slavery galvanized the group to ally with others, like-minded organizations, and its members to go out into the world in order to change it for the better. (laughs) Quakers are pacifists, and have refused to serve in American wars. (laughs) Well, yeah, they don't want to get killed, right? You know, some of these people run the risk of going to these wars because things might happen, right? So, interesting about the Quakers, pacifists. I used to think that was a good thing. Now I think it's a highly suspicious part of this whole thing, right? And you'll see why, because the guy who started this whole mental war thing in the psychiatric group is a Quaker. So That's why I was looking more into Quakers, and of they were Jews. <laughs> Quakers are pacifists and have refused to serve in American wars, but they have more than made up for their worth <laughs> in their extensive humanitarian efforts on behalf of refugees and war victims. Here, too, the Quakers have played an enormously oversized role. The American arm, and these are some names you might want to pay attention to because this stuff is very interesting. You might want to look further at some of these groups, okay? The American arm of the so-called Quaker Friends Society, they use that word friends in their names, Quaker Friends Society, the American Friends Service Committee, they won the. Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> in 1947 in, in general recognition of the humanitarian wartime aid Quakers have provided throughout modern history, but specifically for the role played by uh, AFSC, that means American Friends Service Committee, in saving Christians and Jews from the Nazis during World War II. Unlike most Christian organizations, which helped only Christians, AFSC did not differentiate between faiths and thus became one of the most active non-Jewish organizations saving Jews. Well, that's very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, <clears throat> the group played a pivotal role in the organization of the well-known Kinder Transport. Wow, that must probably... Which... Until it was halted by the outbreak in 1939, it transferred 12,000 Jewish children who were living under Nazi rule to safety in Britain. English Quaker Bertha Bracey, who was instrumental in the kinder transport, was recognized as righteous among nations, as were more than a dozen Quakers who served, who saved Jews often at risk to their lives. So, yeah, I think this little tussle is going on right now. And what it's about is the, some groups of the Jews are mad because the Israelis aren't sticking up for the Quakers is the bottom line here. So, Quakers are people who belong to a historically Protestant Christian set of denominations formerly known as the Religious Society of Friends. Members of these movements are generally united by a belief in each human's ability to experience the light within or see that of God in everyone. Some profess a priesthood of all believers inspired by the first apostle Peter. Epistle, I think it is. They include those with Evangelical, holiness, liberal, and traditional Quaker understanding of Christianity. So, what they did was they just all cut to the chaser. So, some 89% of Quakers worldwide belong to evangelical and Programmed debate branches. So, yeah, what they decided early on was that they were going to focus in the sciences. The proto-evangelical Christian movement, known as Quakerism, arose in mid-17th century England and other dissenting Protestant groups, breaking with the establishment of the Church of England. So the Quakers in the seventh broke off from the Church of England. The Quakers, especially the Valiant 60, some group you might want to look for, Valiant, V-A-L-I-N-T, 60, S-I-X-T-Y, sought to convert others by traveling through Britain and overseeing and preaching the Gospel. Some early Quaker ministers were women. They based their message on a belief that Christ has come to teach His people Himself, stressing direct relationships with God through Jesus Christ and direct belief in the universal priesthood of all believers. This personal religious experience of Christ was acquired by direct experience and by reading and studying of the Bible. Quakers focused their private lives on behavior and speech, and speech reflecting emotional purity and the light of God with a goal of Christian perfection. Past Quakers were known to use the, T H E, the, as an ordinary pronoun. Refusing to participate in war, they wore plain dress, they refused to swear oaths, they were opposed to slavery, well, I don't know about that, I mean, aren't we kind of slaves now? And they practiced teetotalism. Some Quakers founded banks and financial institutions. What a surprising part of this, right? Banks and its financial, including Barclays Bank, Lloyd's, and Friends Province, manufacturers, including the footwear firm of C and J. Clark and the three British confectionery makers, Cadbury, Roundtree, and Fry, and philanthropic efforts including abolition of slavery, slavery, excuse me, prison reform, and social justice. So, yeah, they were into all that stuff, right? Um, what? So, how they got this deal cooked up with the doctors is very interesting. The Religious Society of Friends, that's what it was called, commonly known as Quakers, encouraged some values which may have been conductive to encouraging scientific talents. A theory suggested by David Hacken Fisher, in his book Albion Seed, indicated early Quakers in the U.S. preferred practical study to the more traditional studies of Greek or Latin. Greek or Latin at that time were more popular with the elite, so the Quakers preferred practical study. Another theory suggests their avoidance of dogma or clergy gave them a greater flexibility in response to science. Quakers, early founders of science. What does that tell you? Well, I think it's a pretty big deal personally, and I knew nothing about any of this stuff, so isn't research wonderful? So, um, I don't know why I got this in the middle here, but we'll go with it, okay?
4: <laughs>
2: okay, why Americans pay more for prescription drugs? A number of factors can impact drug pricing. Because remember, the U.S. creates a lot of these drugs, so it's kind of amazing that people here pay so much for them, right? Paying for our own eugenics. Such as the cost of research and development. Yeah, they get researched and developed here in universities. The taxpayers pay it, and then they sell it around the world and charge people much more. So, yeah, that's the thing. Um, I'll give you some statistics on that. Um, one quarter of U.S. adults must borrow money for a $500 medical bill. How common are medical bankruptcies in the United States? While France has virtually no health care related bankruptcies, about half a million Americans file for bankruptcy every year because of medical bills. These and many more medical bankruptcy statistics reveal the health care costs in the United States, and I'll get to that in a minute. The total medical debt the United States that people hold in 2020 totaled $45 billion. About 62% of people highlight health care bills as the leading cause of bankruptcies in America. So, um, yeah, and a lot of these people filing bankruptcies, 78% of them had some sort of insurance. Um... 62.1% 62.1% of all U.S. bankruptcies come from past due medical bills. Where are new drugs coming from? Well, 57% from the United States, 6% from France, 6% from Germany, 8% from the U.K., 9% from Japan, and 13% from their friends in Switzerland. So, yeah... So, let me just give you a couple drug costs just to uh, give you some comparative values here there's a autoimmune pill that I guess sick people, it's called Enbrel, I've seen that advertised E-N-B-R-E-L for autoimmune Canada, they pay $1,600 UK $1,100 Spain pays $1,300 Netherlands $1,500 United States $3,000. I bet you if, if you took a look at that drug, I'll bet it was probably developed in this country. Okay, I'll just give you one more. This one's for a depression. Cymbalta. Canada pays $110. UK pays $46. Spain pays $71. Netherlands pays $52. United States pays $240. Jeez. Okay, so I don't have the cost of insulin here, but yeah, it, insulin is just off. I mean, some people are paying like a thousand bucks a month for their insulin. So, um, the reason I was thinking about the hormones, okay, because remember, up until this big reset, we wouldn't have needed doctors, right? Um, so, That's why I think a lot of these mental institutions, we need to think about them in broader terms, okay? It wasn't likely just housing crazy people. Maybe those experiments drove some of those people crazy, right? Maybe giving them hormones and stuff gave them crazy. So, we could be looking at a whole ball of different things here with these institutions. They could not only be there previously and converted to institutions or there's a lot going on under that roof right and I'll be thinking more about that so the reason I think it could have been early um, hormone treatments by the dates I've talked about this in the past I'm not going to get crazy about it but um, in the um, early 80s they were doing um, experiments on um, The testicles and stuff, okay, which they were taking the um, early, um, (laughs) jeez, early testosterone. We'll call it T for now, okay. They were getting early testosterone in the, starting in 1786, okay. So let's say that this part is true, that they had um, actual marketable synthesized, testosterone in 1935, okay? So up until that point, they were using experimental testosterone. See where this could go? So a lot of that locking them up then could have also included a lot of experimental things. So and another thing um, about these mental institutions is that, surprise, surprise, lots of records were destroyed, okay? Uh, And also, we really haven't moved from these places in many regards. And in this country, for example, there's places that are called containment zones, okay? Places like Skid Row. There's also a containment zone that's famous in Philadelphia called Kensington Park. People shoot up drugs in the open while the cops are standing there, okay? I mean, they're shooting them into other people's necks and stuff in the open there. So, yeah, a lot of these people got, I'll tell you a little bit about the history in a minute. So, a lot of these people were institutionalized, and then because of budget, always oh, about money, right? They got dumped into the streets. So, okay, Bellevue, I think that first clip told you enough about Bellevue. Um, this is, I used to think that uh, teaching hospitals, okay, a lot of counties have what's called teaching hospitals. The hospital that I worked in when I was really young was a county hospital, and that was also considered a teaching hospital. What do those hospitals typically do? Well, they usually treat a lot of poor people, okay? Poor people know to go to one of these hospitals for treatment because they don't want to end up bankrupt, right? So I mean, a lot of things could go on in these teaching hospitals. And Bellevue, I would encourage you to look a little bit more into that because that place is huge. I mean, monstrously huge, okay? Um, And, you know, a lot of poor people go there. I'm not going to start speculating, but I can't imagine that things go well there. So Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of the history here. October 1773, America's... First Insane Asylum opened in Williamsburg, Virginia for persons of insane and disordered minds. A two-story brick institution south of Francis Street, this public hospital was founded at the urging of the governor, who believed science could be employed to cure persons who are so unhappy as to be deprived of their reason. You know, there's a lot to this because if you start to look at society right now, people are calling each other crazy like, like, oh, every day. I mean, look at my reviews here on Apple. <laughs> I think society is being programmed to check each other, to call out other mental disorders, and to think drugs are the only solution. So yeah, there's been a mass movement. I watch all these kids on YouTube. I mean, they're talking about the exact doses of their medicines it's, it's a strange world they're creating here. And it's all about me, me, me. And now it's now they got all the people worried about me, so worried that they have to take all these drugs because they're confused about me being me. I mean, it's just the craziest thing, right? So, I don't know. They called them, um, there was an early group that I knew nothing about. It was called, they, they, they referred to them as hygiene, unhygienic. They called them idiots. Lunatics and other persons of unsound minds. Everybody wants to make everybody else crazy, right? I don't know. I would I would check yourself if you're calling other people crazy, because I got to be truthful with you. The people that have called me crazy, I think they should maybe focus a little bit more on themselves, because <laughs> just saying. Okay, and um, the mental ins- asylum was the historical equivalent of the modern psychiatric hospital. Originally, there were mental asylums, and they got shut down, but we still have psychiatric hospitals. Key words here. The word asylum comes from the earliest religious institutions which provided asylum in the sense of refuge to the mentally ill. Did you know that one in four people shot and killed by police officers between 2015 and 2020 had a mental health condition? Suicide is a leading cause of death for people held in local jails. An estimated 4,000 people with serious mental illness are held in solitary confinement inside U.S. prisons. More than 30% of inmates In California state prisons receive care for serious mental health disorders. Prisons are the dumping ground because they cut back the agencies and I'll get I'll get ranting about that in a few minutes here. Okay, so um, people with mental health issues increasingly receive care provided by correctional agencies. In 1959, nearly 559 hundred thousand or whatever patients were housed in state mental hospitals so they have inside of mental hospital they have prisons okay then there is a shift to deinstitutionalize people with mental health issues and that had dumped these things out by the late 90s so as a result people with mental health issues are more likely to live in local communities. Some come into contact with a prison with a prison system. Yeah, that's why how you get so many of the inmates in prison with mental health needs. And that's only the thirty percent they're treating, right? Okay, now I'll get some of the history. In the eighteen hundreds, asylums were an institution where the mentally ill were held. These facilities witnessed much ineffective and cruel treatment of those who were hospitalized within them. In both Europe and America, these facilities were in need of reform. Okay, yeah, the Europeans had a different outlook. What they basically did, they felt like the asylums were a little bit too rough on people, and they tried to make them more uh, kind. So, with advances in biomedical science, pills, the moral management movement began to decline in the late 1800s due to the emphasis on drugs and psychotherapy. So, yeah, big encounter here with these drugs, right? Um, Prior to the 19th century, there was little distinction between lunatic asylums as the primitive mental health facilities. They were also confused with poor houses and jails. So early on, lunatic asylums were for people who were poor and they wanted to put in jail. Along comes this guy, and I'll get to him in a minute here, um, he came up with the Kirkbridge plan. I'm going to try to remember to scroll back here. Okay. Because I have a whole thing on that guy, <laughs> the Quaker who started the psychiatric group. Okay, let me read you about the American perspective because this other guy, Kirk Guy, he, he comes in later. Um, in America, mental conditions such as depression, mania, or melancholy could cause one to be admitted to a mental institution. These places resemble private madhouses rather than hospitals. Due to poor organizational structure and lack of quality services to patients, these places left few, if any, records. To manage unruly patients, physical restraints were used. These places were obviously disastrous for all those who needed help. So they began people started protesting, okay? And along came somebody to help the problem. (laughs) Evil always has to come package as help. Well, who rushed in to help? Nobody else but this doctor Story Kirkbride. I was looking at his name, Kirk Bride. What is he, the bride of Kirk? (laughs) So, um, they began to protest. One man famous for his work in the advancement of moral treatment of the mentally ill was Dr. Thomas Story Kirkbride. From the mid to the late 1800s, Dr. Kirkbride insisted that patients who were confined to overcrowded jails and almshouses should be housed in facilities that had environments conducive to their well-being and comfort. (laughs) <laughs> Dr. Kilbright was a physician. He was an advocate for the mentally ill and founder of the Association of Medical Superintendents of American the Institution for the Insane, a precursor to the American Psychiatric Association, Dr. Thomas Story Kirkbride. So, there we got our beginning point right. Dr. Kirkbride is also regarded as being one of the fathers of American psychiatry. I never knew any of this. I hope I'm not boring you. <laughs> so, Along with that of Dr. Benjamin Rush, R-U-S-H. He is best remembered for the design of the 19th century psychiatric hospitals, which bear his name. He was born on July 31st, 1809, on a farm in Morrisville, Pennsylvania, into a wealthy Quaker family. Surprise, surprise. When he was 18 years old, he started studying medicine. Another brilliant person, right? Fabulous, smart, brilliant, aren't they all, right? After he received a medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania in 1832, what was he, about 12? (laughs) So he was 18 when he started school. He graduated 1828. Well, whatever. Anyway, he became the youngest resident at a Quaker mental institution in Philadelphia. This mental institution was called Friends Asylum, also called Friends Hospital. They like this Friends. All these people say, hey, friend. Hey, family. The asylum for the relief of persons deprived of their use of their reason, and the Frankfort Asylum. That's a long name, isn't it? The asylum for the relief of persons deprived of the use of their reason. <laughs> so after one year of residency, this brilliant doctor saw the light and he became an advocate for building hospitals for the mentally ill. (laughs) Okay. This style was used on many 18th century hospitals, including St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C. Many of these buildings, designed by leading architects of the time, are in ruins or decay now. So yeah, there's one that's around called The Village. Previously known as Trans Transverse City State Hospital, evidently that one's still around. So yeah, um, this King King Bride or Kirk Bride—I gotta get his name straight—he um, went on to do many other things. Yeah, founder of the American Psychiatric Group. There we got our guy, right? Um, Kirkbride's ideas brought about mixed feelings in both patients and peers. Some in the medical community saw his theories and ideas as stubbornly clinging to ideals that hindered medical progress, while others supported his ideas and saw them change the treatment philosophy of the mentally sane. They thought he was really a savior, right? He sometimes inspired fear and anger in his patients, even to the point that one attempted to murder him. But he also believes that the mentally ill could be treated possibly cured. In fact, after the death of his first wife, Kirkbride married a former patient. (laughs) I don't know. Go look at his stuff. He's got stuff all over the place. Look for Kirkbride. That's the uh, style of all these mental institutions. And he's also the founder of the American Psychiatric Association. If I get time, I'll get back to who the other founder was. But right now, this is enough. Okay. The mentally ill in early American communities were generally cared for by family members. However, in severe cases, they sometimes ended up in almshouses or jails. Because mental illness was generally thought to be caused by a moral or spiritual failing, punishment and shame were often handed down to the mentally ill and sometimes their families as well. As the population grew and certain areas became more densely settled, mental illness became one of the number of special illnesses, excuse me, special issues for which community institutions were created. Isn't that amazing? They just rushed right out there and helped everybody, right? In 19, excuse me, 1752, the Quakers of Philadelphia, the first, I'm just going to hit the highlights here, the first to make an organized effort to care for the mentally ill, Quakers. that's why I went to the time to talk about the Quakers just a little bit not to throw too much shade on them but I think they're crypto Jews but you know think for yourself okay just because I think they are doesn't mean you have to think they are so yeah so the Quakers um, the new Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane was opened Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane (sighs) 1773 1773 To deal with mentally disturbed people who were causing problems, see we're looking at the state here, in the community, the Virginia legislature provided funds to build a small hospital in Williamsburg. Over the years the hospital grew in size as needs arose but remained within the historical area of the city until the mid-20th century. So 1792, the New York Hospital opened a ward for curable insane patients. 1792, curable ones, right? In 1808, a freestanding medical facility was built nearby for the humane treatment of the mentally ill. And in 1821, a larger facility called Bloomingdale Asylum was built and now is the Upper East West Side. So yeah, a lot of buildings for people to correct their behavior on the East Coast, don't you think? 1817 in Philadelphia, the Asylum for the Relief of Persons Deprived of the Use of Their Reasons was opened under Quaker auspices as a private mental health hospital. It continues today. It's called Friends Hospital. 1824, the Eastern Lunatic Asylum was opened in Lexington, Kentucky as the first mental institution west of the Appalachian Mountains. It still operates today under the name of Eastern State Hospital. By 1890, every state in the United States had built one or more publicly supported mental hospitals, which all expanded in size as the country's population increased. By mid-20th century, the hospitals housed over 500,000 patients, and I don't know, we'd have to look at the uh, data of the census to see if that makes a big difference or not, but began to diminish in size as new methods of treatment became available pills became cheaper than housing. So, okay, 1833. Uh, oh, this is a good one. Worcester State Hospital opened the Massachusetts as the first mental hospital fully supported by state funds, 1833. By 1860, 28 of the 33 existing US states had state psychiatric hospitals. Now that is a fascinating number, right? 1860, they were lined up and waiting for me, right? 1939 to 1945, during World War, word, excuse me, <laughs> World war II, conscientious objectors entered state psychiatric hospitals to replace doctors. So what they did, people opposed to the war, doctors opposed to the war, they interstate, I, I don't get that part. But anyway, in 1946, Life Magazine publishes photos depicting the horrors inside these hospitals. 1954, here comes the pills. Chlor- chloramazine, known as Thorazine, is approved by the FDA. It's the first antipsychotic drug widely used to treat these symptoms of mental illness. For some, it brought hope that some patients could live among the community. 1955, hospital patients peak at 560,000 patients. Okay, um, yeah, so now we're in the 50s. Everybody's favorite friend, JFK. 1963, President JFK signs the Community Mental Health Act. This pushes the responsibility of mentally ill patients from the state toward the federal government. JFK wanted to create a network of community mental health centers where mentally ill people could live in the community while receiving... So I scroll down too far. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, okay it, Mentally ill people could live in the community while receiving care, so they wanted to live out in houses and be getting care. JFK could have been inspired to act because of his younger sister, Rosemary, who was mentally disabled and received a lobotomy and spent her life hidden away. Yeah, Rosemary Kennedy, I don't know if that story is true, but it's a very sad story, right? I think she got the lobotomy and stuff because maybe she knew too much. Um, Less than a month after signing the new legislation, JFK is assassinated. In 1965, the U.S. Congress establishes Medicaid and Medicare. And By the way, right now they're pulling Medicaid from people um, because they're saying they don't need help. Mentally disabled people living in the community are eligible for benefits, but those in psychiatric hospitals are excluded. By encouraging patients to be discharged, state legislatures could shift the cost of care for mentally ill patients to the federal government. And that we have to thank JFK by that sneaky move to shift to shift mental patients under the charge of the federal government. Boy, really messed a lot of people, right? Now nah, that wasn't enough. We have Ronald Reagan here, so we'll get to that in a minute. Okay, Um, 1967, Ronald Reagan is elected governor of California. At this point, the number of patients had dropped because of Kennedy, right? Um, And the Reagan administration uses the decline as a reason to make cuts to the Department of Mental Hygiene. That was what it was called early on, the Department of Mental Hygiene. So they cut a bunch of jobs, they cut a bunch of budgets the Department of Mental Hygiene. And 67, Reagan signs this act to end the practice of institutionalizing patients against their will or for indefinite amounts of time. They didn't give up institutionalizing. Did you read where I said or? <laughs> That's probably where they came up with the 5150s. You know, we're just going to lock you up for a few days here. Okay, this law is regarded by some as a patient's bill of right. Yeah, I don't really think so because those 5150s, and all they have to do is get you for the first three days, take you in front of a judge, <laughs> tell the judge they, these professionals still think you're crazy, and there you go, right? So, 1969. That was the year I graduated from high school. Reagan reverses earlier budget cuts. He increases spending on the Department of Mental Hygiene. Well, I don't know why they did that, because um, he signs the Mental Health Systems Act to improve on Kennedy's dream. (laughs) Kennedy had a dream. See how one has a dream, the other has a nightmare? In 1981, I'm getting close here. President Reagan repeals Carter's legislation. I don't know. You can't keep track of some of this stuff. The bottom line is... um, People are on the streets, right? Um, state prisoners. 55% of people experiencing chronic homelessness. They have emotional or psychiatric conditions. Yeah, that's how they ended up on the streets, likely. Okay. This is how it all started, right? The mass closure of state mental hospitals in the United States coincided with the advent and popularity of neuroleptic medications, the patients' right movement, and the well-intentioned but poorly delivered national transition toward a community-based mental health care. At one point in the 1950s, more than half a billion Americans were confined to mental institutions. So uh, yeah, they're looking, they're building numbers, um, and I want to talk about this woman, Dorothy. Dorothea, she's pretty interesting. Okay, best known as a tireless advocate for psychiatric care for the poor and disenfranchised, Dorothea Dix, D-I-X. Look her up. Fascinating story. I'm not going to tell her whole story here, but it's well worth spending some time on, okay? She was responsible for pushing. We had that other guy, you know, the bride guy. We had him. With his own design, but Dorothy's kind of Dorothea is an interesting figure here, right? She pushed the state mental hospitals in the 1800s. There were waves of immigration from Ireland, Germany, and Italy that led to rapid population growth, prompting a gr- greater need for appropriate medical and psychiatric treatment. What does that tell us? They get these people here, and maybe some aren't going to program. Into the nut word you go, All right? That's what I think. But hey, you have to think what you want to think. Dix, a hero in the field of social work, cited the mental health of the citizenry to be of vital importance to the state. The American mental asylum was born. Dix, you want to look her up? She was the she's considered the second most influential in the nut house business. Okay. Um, by the 20th century, Kirkbride's hospitals became vastly overcrowded with a vastly number of over- psychiatric patients. Another example of the mass institutionalization of the mid-20th century is Weston State Hospital. I encourage you to look that up. It's very, very formerly known as the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. In West Virginia. It's another Kirkbridge Hospital. That's the one you want to look at. I think I talked about that earlier. That's the one you want to look for because that one is still standing. And as a matter of fact, when I'm done here, I will be charging over there and looking myself. <laughs> when I suggest that you go and look at things further, I'm also making the same suggestion for myself because amassing this much data in, you know, I don't know, eight or ten hour time period, there's a lot of loose ends that I go and explore after I'm done with the show. And if I find anything really significant, I'll talk about it, but I encourage you to also look. So, Um, what was the first, oh wait a minute, yeah, okay, I missed this part, this is very important. Yeah, today most Kirkbridge hospitals sit abandoned, neglected, and vandalized. Though several are still in operation at greatly reduced capacity, Or have been renovated for uses other than mental health care. Perhaps the best example of mixed-use renovation is the former Traverse City State Hospital in Traverse City, Michigan. It closed in 1989. The hospital has been converted into residential condos, offices, and retail space. The state mental hospital reflects a bygone era in American psychiatry. Gone are the days of long-term psychiatric hospitals and housing for the most severely mentally ill. Instead, for better or for worse, patients in need of psychiatric admissions are treated for five or seven days and discharged back to the community, sometimes without a place to live. And they also do, in this country, um, dumps, D-U-M-P-S. What they do is they when, they, when some states get too many populations of homeless and mentally handicapped in this country, they give them bus tickets, one-way bus tickets. They pick out another city to send them to and just ship them off somewhere else. So, yeah, that's what they do to each other. Um, so, um, what was the first private mental hospital in the United States? The first nonprofit, exclusively mental hospital in the United States is called the Bethpage Mission in Nebraska. That's spelled B-E-T-H-P-H-A-G-E. What that means, Bethages? Huh? Must be a, a spin on orphanage. Mission in Nebraska was another religiously inspired hospital. You know, this country is loaded with religious-owned hospitals. Just saying. You might want to take a look. Um, They do it because they're in the eugenics business, right? (laughs) That's just my opinion, okay? Um, Why hospitals are owned by religious? Because, I don't know, eugenics, money. They're non-profits. So there's there's a lot of reasons, right? Okay, so the mission, this Bethphage mission, (laughs) what a name, The mission opened in 1914, followed the work of the Swedish and Augustan Evangelical Lutheran Church. Lutherans came from Germany, didn't they? And Lutherans settled all over the Midwest, bringing the good worth of the Lutheran Church. Today, only a small number of historic public and private psychiatric hospitals exist. Psychiatric care and treatment are now delivered through a web of services, including crisis services, short-term and general hospital-based acute psychiatric care units, and outpatient services. I was in a general uh, acute psychiatric ward in California. Um, Well, I mean, (laughs) only for a couple days (laughs) if they let me out. Um, So, um, yeah, so... Uh, I don't know. There's one guy I want you to look for, because I'm going to be looking for him later, a guy named Clifford Beers, Beers, B-E-E-R-S. Um, he cited the uh, SPARKS, the mental health reform movement, with an insightful autobiography. He claimed he was in a nut word himself. So he found it, which is very interesting, like beer, like, you know, you drink beer, um, He founded the Connecticut Society for Mental Hygiene in 1908 which would expand a year later to form the National Committee for Mental Hygiene. The committee was also the precursor to the National Mental Health Association which later became Mental Health America on November 16, 2006. 1910, Mental Health America facilitated the creation of more than 100 child guidance clinics in the United States aimed at prevention and early intervention and treatment. Boy, they were at the children very early on, weren't they? Already figuring the kids are going to be going nuts so they needed these people's care? Jeez. 1917, at the request of the Surgeon General, Mental Health America drafted a mental hygiene program which was adopted by the Army and the Navy in preparation for First World War. 1920s, Mental Health America produced a set of model commitment laws which were subsequently incorporated into the statutes of several states. 1930 Mental Health America convened the first international congress on mental hygiene in Washington D.C. bringing together more than 3000 individuals from 45 or 41 countries Mental Health America 1930 1947 the National Mental Health Act which created the National Institute of Mental Health Passed as a result of Mental Health America's advocacy, 1953, to symbolize the its mission of change, Mental Health America commissioned the casting of the mental health bell from chains and shackles that restrain people with mental. I don't know. Mental Health America commissioned the cast. Oh, I guess it's. I, I don't know. I can't even go there. Let's look at 1953. I think this is some sort of exhibitor. 1955, Mental Health America joined and supported the Commission on Mental Illness and Mental Health, which was created and funded by Congress. 1962, Mental Health America convened the National Leadership Conference on Action for Mental Health, in which a hundred national voluntary organizations participated. So, 1963, the Community Mental Health Act was passed by Congress. Uh, I'm just reading through these. um, Mental Health Renewal, blah, 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 blah. This is interesting in calling the only human. 1971, Mental Health America produced and distributed the film Only Human, which aired on more than 150 television stations to improve public understanding of mental illness and public acceptance of persons with mental illness. So you want to look for a film, probably on YouTube, called Only Human. And while you're there looking, I keep forgetting to mention this, in the 50s and 60s, they did all kinds of training um, videos for us. They're usually about five minutes. There's a guy named... David Hoffman, he's a Hollywood guy, and he does. Um, he has a channel on YouTube, and he restores a lot of these old um, things. They have things from the 50s teaching kids how to date. Um, they have things about how do you know if you're if you're in love. They have things for parents how to teach your children. I mean, this this this, this teaching thing in the 50s and 60s is extensive, and I really recommend spend some time watching some of those early, there really were indoctrination things, right? So watch some of those early indoctrinations. Really, I mean, they were getting into the minds and trying to be the parents from the beginning, right? Sound kind of familiar now? So, anyway, President Nixon's impound, 72, President Nixon impounded funds appropriate for the National Institute of Mental Health. So they, I don't know why impounded, I don't really care. Um. People just basically got kicked out of the streets is the bottom line here, okay? Um, And what they did was they just kicked them in the streets and they got all these people to form these. It's just kind of like how they run these wars in the United Nations, right? They have all these, they call them NGOs. That means non-government organizations. What they do is all these deals. You'll find one main group of maniacs and psychos is in charge of the group. And then they bring in all their buddies in these outside groups. And those outside groups now are just referred to as NGOs. But what they do is they kind of, I think they want to spread the money around, excuse me, spread the money around to relatives and stuff. Because they always bring in a lot of vendors. They bring in a lot of organizations, like for the homeless. I mean, come on, they've been been making money on homeless people since day one, okay, because what they do is they present a problem and, you know, people sleeping in the streets empathetic people will donate money or approve funding for that, and then these people will just steal it all. So that, that's how the drill runs in this country, right? Okay. Oh, jeez. I got to answer my door. Hold on a second. I'm going to close this off real quick. <laughs> okay, I'm back. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let me see where I was here. Um, mental wards. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, I was about. Give me one half a second here. Okay, now, um, not much more insignificant here. You know, 1989 was pretty significant. Mental Health America released its report on the Invisible Children Project, which revealed the gross neglect and over-institutionalization of children with emotional disorders in the United States. Yeah, all the children, it's so sad because um, what's going on is that these meds, medications for anxiety and stuff, aren't being developed specifically for children. What's going on is doctors, you know, will say things like, well, I have seen some very good results at other children your child's age, and that's how it gets passed off to parents. So, yeah, I don't think there's much more I want to say about here because, um, yeah, mental health is not good, okay? I think it's cause and effect. I think that what's happened is that you create a situation where people are terribly unhappy. You start feeding them drugs. You start feeding them hormones. You start doing mass experimentations. And, of course, you're going to see people who have some mental problems, right? Right. And I think what they probably do, and I'm just thinking here because I have no proof, is that for a lot of these mental patients, what they do is they likely do a, uh, you know, they know how to zap, give us electroshock treatments, right? So I am pretty sure at this stage of the game, they know what region of the brain to shock. So how complicated would that be? You want to cut down your expenses, get them out of the hospital, Given a zap of electroshock, well, I say this because when I was requesting to go off medication <coughs> and um, they made a very hard push to get me to agree to electroshock treatment. So, yeah, so I don't know. Um the case with the children' it's all very sad, it's pathetic. I really hope that um, you'll look further. I can't cover every single detail of the show, but it's pretty fascinating stuff because how did it get started? Well, we got religion. I think the Quakers are, sound pretty Jewish to me, or I would call them crypto-Jews just to be politically correct. So, yeah, I think that's been a big setup. Get the Jews into the world of science. And because the Quakers became the science, became the doctors, well, you know, that impacted all of our science, right? So I'll probably be looking into more of this stuff because it's kind of interesting because it is a spin-off point in the deception. So there's just a lot to think about here. So anyway, so be safe out there. Goodbye for now.
4: I proceed, gentlemen, briefly to call your attention to the present state of insane persons confined within this commonwealth. In cages, closets, cellars, stalls, pens, chained naked, beaten with rods, and lashed into obedience. Dorothea
3: Dix and her memorial to the Massachusetts State Legislature. Dorothea Lynn Dix reformed insane asylums and traveled the nation proclaiming her cause. She founded or enlarged 32 great asylums. Her reforms on asylums, prisons, and almshouses proved to America
4: that outcasts are still human. Dixon endured a troubled childhood with an alcoholic father who was a Methodist minister. She did not come from an influential family and she lived in loneliness and despair. Later in life, she never mentioned her parents and even claimed sometimes that she was an orphan. Some historians say that her unhappy childhood fueled her need to help society's outcasts. At age 12, she fled to live with her grandmother in Boston. In 1821, Dix opened an academy for wealthy young ladies in her grandmother's house and pursued a successful teaching career. At 33, she developed tuberculosis and suffered a complete mental
3: breakdown, forcing her to quit her work and recuperate. She spent 18 months in Liverpool, England, healing. Upon her return to Boston, she spent a cold March day teaching at a Sunday school class at the East Cambridge House of Corrections. As she was leaving, she came across some cells used to house the mentally ill that had no heat. Appalled, she confronted the warden and was told that lunatics
4: could not tell the difference between hot and cold. On that day, Dix discovered her life's mission. She began investigating the treatment of the mentally ill in Massachusetts and discovered horrifying conditions. In 1943, she submitted her first memorial to the state legislator, describing the terrible sight she saw and the urgency of the situation. After weeks of heated debate, the legislator approved funds for the expansion of the Worcester State Lunatic Hospital.
3: Encouraged by her success, Dix decided to expand her campaign, starting off in Rhode Island and New York, investigating the different facilities. At each, she examined the conditions and treatment of the patients. She discovered harsh abuses and a lack of sanitation. In both states, she was able to secure funds for new institutions. This was only the beginning as she soon continued to expand and spread her ideas to the South and West. Her ideas and efforts were widely publicized, which led to others trying to contact her to assist them in their efforts. Over the next 40 years, Dix caused 15 states to establish hospitals for the mentally ill. According to Professor Thomas Brown, she argued to legislators that modern governments needed to provide modern treatment for the insane poor. She embodied contemporary humanitarianism and particularly a sympathetic ideal of womanhood.
4: Dorothea Dix expanded her reforms to the federal legislation in 1853. She tried to get Congress to set aside millions of acres of public land in trust and devote the income to helping the insane. The bill passed through both houses of Congress, however, President Franklin Pierce vetoed it. Dick's campaigned
3: the idea that the mentally ill, the poor, and the convicts should be split, as opposed to living together in a large institution. She did not only limit herself to the mentally ill, but also encouraged penal reform. Regardless of their issue or severity, all of the patients received the same form of negative attention. From this, Dix sought to demand education and better care of prisoners and introduced the idea of splitting criminals
4: up based on their crimes. Dix is still honored today as an amazing reformer who improved the conditions of asylums, prisons, and almshouses drastically, as well as revolutionizing the treatment of these patients. This is a story about a woman who built in more than wood and stone. This is a story about a
3: woman who built an idea Angel of Mercy by Rachel Baker.